knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com. And enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. Okay, there we are. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kendall, with my co-host, Drew Youngdike. Today, we have a couple of excellent guests from the great state of Missouri. We have Nate McLeod and Brandon Butler from Driftwood Outdoors. We're going to call Nate Shags. That's his nickname, and he's going to tell us why. Uh, but first, uh, we always like to start these things by giving everybody a chance to talk a little bit about who they are and, and what they've been doing outside. So we'll, we'll give Brandon and, and Shags the chance to talk about what they've been doing outside first, and then Drew and I will follow up with some questions. Why don't you go first, Shags? Well, we, we just wrapped up rifle season uh, here in Missouri, and pretty much Brandon and I spent deer camp together opening weekend chasing uh, nighttime poachers off property that was less than 100 yards away from our, our camp and, and his cabin. So there was, what, six or seven of us out around the campfire uh, after, clearly after sunset. It was dark, 830 and we watched this truck come down off the hill, drive past our camp into the field next to us and started spotlighting. And when I say spotlight, it's not like uh, the handheld spotlight you would think of. It was like a light bar, absolutely insane. It was like Friday night lights in this field. And suddenly two shots rang out, all of us sitting around the campfire thinking less than a hundred yards away, total disregard for any safety. There was another campground, uh, another cabin right down across the street, less than 50 yards away from the shooting. Brandon jumped in the side by side. I was chasing after him on foot and we pretty much had to run him out of the holler hooting and screaming. It was just total disbelief. And maybe it's the, uh, I grew up in the great state 
of Oregon, Pacific Northwest. Everyone likes to joke that I'm a tree hugging hippie and maybe it's the hippie in me, but it really took, it took something from, from me personally at that deer camp. I just, I lost the, the urge to go out and try to harvest an animal. I almost felt sorry for him because of all the dogs that were being used around opening weekend. And then to see that at such close, close range, it was just such a sad sad experience deer hunting that it kind of just tainted the whole experience and and uh, I really just kind of sat back and and uh and and hung out for the the rest of the time that's a bummer is that is that something that happens often around you were you, were you at drift driftwood acres with Brandon is that the first time you've experienced that at deer camp when it came to the poaching at night, 100%. Now we've had issues with the dog culture down down there in in the past, but seeing seeing the blatant disregard for not only the rules and the laws and and the animals, but just even your neighbor's safety. We were literally, no exaggeration, less than a hundred yards away. You could see the muzzle flash go off. We were that close. And then not to mention Brandon's neighbors down, down the hill across the street, less than 50 yards away from the shooting. Just the, the total disregard for, for people's safety and the rules. And like, you just, you left there going, man, these poor deer don't stand a chance. It was sad. Well, thanks for telling the story, even though it's an, it's an unfortunate story. It reminds people to, you know, be diligent and uh, police your, your bad acting neighbors. If they're doing something like that, get over there and talk to them if you can. And, you know, hopefully keep it from being a dangerous situation. But we got to do that kind of thing. How about you, Brandon? What, what have you been up to? I mean, it sounds like you, you were in on that as well. But what else is happening? Yeah, uh, it was, it was, as he said, disappointing, you know, you pour a lot of time and effort and money into developing a property where you think it's only going to be good memories, but every once in a while, a bad apple rolls through and and you got to deal with it. When we saw that muzzle flash go off, uh, I jumped in the side by side and, and took off after those people leaving everybody else around the campfire halfway down there. I thought I'm charging alone into this situation Knowing they're armed, I'm not. Thankfully, I I know my friends are good friends because the posse came rolling down the driveway trying to catch me. A smarter guy would have waited for him in the beginning, uh, but I I just went after him. Uh, They they pulled a Dukes of Hazard move and got around us, but I probably rode their, their bumper two feet off of it, screaming at them and got the license plate number and and turned them in. So we got some real Hatfield and McCoy situation developing down in, uh, in the Creek bottoms. So uh, be careful when you come down the Hill, we're going to, we might throw a few warning shots over, over the road. Sorry. When you said Dukes of hazard, I assumed that when you were chasing them, they jumped the Creek paused mid air whilst Waylon Jennings had a had a voiceover before they resumed and hit the other side of the creek. So that didn't happen. If somebody would have played good old boys on the radio at that moment, it, it wouldn't it would have been absolutely perfect. So but that experience aside, um I did cash in eight 
points in Colorado and fulfilled a, a lifelong dream, went out and killed a, a real thumper of a mule deer. When I was a boy, my grandpa and his buddies would go out to Colorado, Wyoming. And I remember being real young, like five, six, and they'd pull back into the driveway, open up that enclosed trailer, and you'd see all those antlers in there. And I always thought someday I'm going to do that. Now I moved out West after college and killed a few, few mule deer, but nothing to really, you know, call the deer of a lifetime. And I'm, I'm real excited that I got that done this year with a deer that uh, will be hard for me to surpass. Came back to Missouri, uh, went through that whole ordeal with shags and my cousin and a few other people threw my hands up and left the holler, went up and started kind of hunting some ag fields, which is how I came up in Indiana and, and shot a beautiful 10 point Northern Missouri whitetail. So really I, I can't complain. I've, I've had two incredible uh, hunts, two great deer. I've had a lot of incredible hunts. I went 13 days in a row, at least one hunt morning or night, but many days was both uh, before tagging that Missouri deer. So it's been, it's been a great season. Um, hoping to get one or two more hunts in might be going to Pennsylvania and then heading up to Nebraska to do some upland hunting. If I'm, I'm not mistaken, our mutual friend Paddle Don was there at a deer camp with you. Paddle Don was there. Paddle Paddle Don was, uh, Paddle Don's a pretty passive dude, you know, like it's hard to get Paddle Don real fired up, but when he was throwing, uh, throwing a magazine in the AR and my cousin's over there going, I think that might escalate things, man. (laughs) Paddle Don was like, well, it's better to be prepared than not prepared. So yeah, Paddle Don was there and he was ready to throw down. For, for those that, that don't know, Paddle Don is Don uh, Cranfill, and he appeared in our Asian carp video that we produced with our Great Lakes office called Against the Current, which you can find on the NWF Outdoors Vimeo page that Brandon actually did, a, did an excellent write-up of that we appreciate in his uh, Driftwood Outdoors column. Yeah, that that was a great video, man. Uh, hats off to you. You did really well with that. Uh, glad to see Paddle Don in that. He really is an Indiana source of information. And I know he, he knows a lot about that Asian carp situation. And yeah, I write a syndicated column, runs in about 30 newspapers a week across Indiana, Missouri. And uh, I was real happy to help promote that for you because I thought it's something people needed to see. And we should give him a shout out as well. He was the only one to get a buck at deer camp through all that chaos. His first deer, his first buck in like 13 years, a beautiful Ozark timber 10 point. So shout out Paddle Don, man. Nice. Well, Brandon and Shags, before we switch, I mean, did you catch these guys? Did they get, did they get caught? The, you got the license plate number. Do we know? Yes and no. It, it, it's in process. So here's the frustrating thing. And I'm probably going to go present to the Conservation Commission because after my column came out and the podcast really blew up. I mean, that's the good thing. There's a ton of notoriety around the situation now because I wrote about it. Uh, Shags and I did the podcast and then he talked about it on the radio, which we forgot to mention kind of what we do for day jobs. Nathan, we'll is ac- <laughs> Nathan's actually a full time radio DJ, real popular here in mid-Missouri. So this story is out there. Uh, The agents are very aware of it. And we're both real tied into the leadership at the Department of Conservation. So a commissioner reached out to me and I said, look, there's 300,000 acres minimum of public land in this county. 
And there's only two conservation agents to cover the entire county. And we're going to talk, I guess, about CWD here in a little bit. We all know how critical that is to the future of deer and deer hunting. But we have voluntary check stations. You know Shannon County is the most outlaw-based county in the state when it comes to poaching. And they took one of the two agents and sent him 100 miles away to work a check station. So you got one agent working 300,000 acres of public land that to me, that's throwing your hands up and just saying, there's nothing that can be done about it. The dogs are going to run, the poaching is going to happen. And, and that's just not acceptable to me. So there has to be an answer. I don't know if they're going to bring extra agents down and try to make a statement at some point, but it's just not acceptable to have one agent who's not making very much money asking that person to put their life on the line for our, our wildlife and wild lands and, and not even giving them one other person to be in the county with them at that time. So we're not only bringing light to the fact that this is going on and happening and ruining people's times, but we're also trying to bring light to the fact that our agents are underserved, our agents are underpaid, and we need to do something to make that job something that more people want to do for the right reasons, and, and hopefully bring uh, a little bit more uh, law to the table in, the, in these areas that we know historically have been uh, hotbeds for poaching. And Brandon, we didn't mention what, what you do as a day job uh, either. Can you tell folks a little bit about Roslyn Energy and your role there? It's it's actually Raceline. Nobody oh, ever. That's all right, man. That. Like, it's a it's a German spelling. Uh, it's Raceline Alternative Energy, and we we make renewable natural gas from livestock manure. We're also in the process of of launching what we call Horizon Two, which will allow us to make renewable natural gas out of cellulosic biomass, meaning uh, native prairie plants and cover crops. And we've got a big long plan about why we're trying to restore prairie uh, native grasses in the heartland along our waterways to solve erosion problems uh, to deal with the hypoxia that's taking place in the gulf of mexico because we're sending so many nutrients down our riverways that that don't belong there so it's a it's a conservation story through renewable energy production uh, tying in agriculture we're in a joint venture with smithfield foods which is a, a large pork producer well it's the largest pork producer on the planet uh, they run many CAFOs. We've got nine of those in North Missouri. And I know people just started shuddering and, and you know, with that word CAFO. And, and there are some <laughs> historic horror stories. But what we're trying to do is bring a new process to those farms. We're eliminating the odor. We're improving air quality. We're improving water quality. We're sequestering carbon in the soil. Uh, we're keeping all those methane and other gases that contribute to our greenhouse gas explosion over the last century out of the atmosphere and, and turning those back into uh, a usable fuel source. So when you think about fracking and, and pulling blue gas out of the ground, that's all carbon that's trapped down in the earth's core. And we're, and we're releasing that, adding carbon to our atmosphere by capturing the carbon coming off of uh, off these fields and lagoons and, and plant-based agriculture, livestock-based agriculture. You know, we're able to 
recycle carbon, if you will. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. You know, I, I got to know you guys when I was the executive director of the Conservation Federation of Missouri, which is uh, Missouri's affiliate to the National Wildlife Federation. And uh, Shags is now an executive committee member of CFM. I'm still involved. So we're, we're still both a big part of the NWF family. That that's great, um, and and that you're both still so involved in conservation that um, you're getting the word out about conservation issues through both Driftwood Outdoors um, and your radio show. And Brandon, actually, I think the first time I met you was at around the campfire at the Association of Great Lakes Outdoors Writers in uh, in 2016, um, which you mentioned that you have your your column. How did you and, and Shags meet? How did you hook up to uh, form this podcast and this partnership? <laughs> this is a real, this is a fun story. So it was it was probably five or six years ago. Again, I do a morning show for a classic rock station in Columbia, ninety six seven KCMQ, and. I've always been an outdoorsman. I've always considered myself a conservationist growing up in the Pacific Northwest, right on the Columbia River, like 30 minutes in from the coast. I mean, I grew up in Goonies country. So, I mean, I was salmon fishing, sturgeon fishing, deer, elk hunting. That's just how I grew up. So when I moved to the the Midwest, I brought my passion for the outdoors with me. And I would I'd just tell stories on the air sometimes about my fishing, my fishing adventure. And it was selfish. It was me just wanting to brag about what I did over the weekend. Well, it, it, it really took off. People really enjoyed it. So we, we, we teamed up with the Department of Conservation and did little bits with some of the guys like Brian Flowers, the outdoor skill specialist at the time, and, and would have them specialists come in and do little outdoor breaks. Well, five or six years ago, there was a couple of uh, a state rep and a senator that was trying to gut the Department of Conservation. They wanted to take their, their funding away. They would have lost like 85% of their funding. So being the morning show rock DJ, I thought the best thing I could do is when I show up in the morning at like 430, I'm going to call their office. I'm going to leave them a voicemail asking them, why do you hate Missouri? Why do you hate everything we love? Why are you trying to ruin the great outdoors in this great state? Knowing no one was going to answer the phone. It's 4.30 in the morning. So I'd leave this huge long voicemail going, please call me back. I would love to hear your explanation. And then I would call, I would, I would replay that every hour, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 a.m., going, I wonder if they'll pick up now. And of course, they never picked up. So I was trolling. I was trolling them hard to the point <laughs> that one of the representatives was in the St. Louis Dispatch quoted, I do not hate the state of Missouri because I was having my listeners call them up, leave them voicemails asking, simply ask, why do you hate Missouri? Because you're trying to ruin it. So I did this for two weeks straight. Every single day, Monday through Friday, I would call and leave voicemails and play it all morning long. Well, I was ready to take a bullhorn and go kick down the door of the Capitol and just march and scream and hoot and holler. And uh, someone was like, hey, you need to meet this guy, Brandon Butler. You two are going to be great together. So we met for some wings and some beers with my co-host, uh, Trevor Morgan. Shout out. And we, we had a couple of wings, a couple of uh, uh, Miller, Miller lights. And Brandon's like, Love your passion. 
but I got a better idea. And we started Conservation Day at the Capitol, which is still going to this day successful. I mean, of course, this year it had to be postponed because of COVID. But uh, it, it's it's one of the highlights of the year where we take over the third floor rotunda at the Capitol. 30 plus affiliates, nonprofits show up just to show and remind our elected officials how much Missouri loves conservation. So we broadcast live from uh, 6A till till noon. And quite honestly, it's one of the one of the highlights of my my radio career and it's really it's really launched uh brandon brandon my's friendship and also partnership and he's the one that's really opened my eyes to that i was an outdoorsman before this and really taking the steps to become a conservationist and the difference between the two and now really taking pride in doing more than just enjoying the outdoors and doing more in saving the outdoors preserving it that's awesome. We we actually are doing something similar across the handful of states now out west, Camo at the Capitol, we call it. And it's it's very similar, getting a bunch of sportsmen and women up to the Capitol, meet their decision makers, tell them what they care about. So I'm glad to hear you all are doing it. A bunch of the NWF affiliates over the years have done some sort of, you know, uh, version of that. There's a conservation at the Capitol is a great one, though. I appreciate you guys doing that. Uh let, let me ask you guys too, you know, we, we heard how you connect and, and by the way, real quick, Shags, did they audition you for, for the radio voice? Cause you do have a heck of a radio voice. Did they, did they <laughs> well, say, you know, you have to have some certain standard because it, it seems like you can just hear your voice and tell you're on radio. Well, I always get a big kick out of it because I was always, I was always getting in trouble with it because my voice carries. So I was always in the principal's office and uh, always getting warned to be quiet. And now this alligator mouth that used to get me in trouble for so long now pays the bills. So it's really (laughs) highly entertaining. (laughs) Well, good. So, so you guys got together and then tell me, tell us now, you know, what are you doing? You've got this podcast, you're working on some different things. Give us a, give us a little rundown of what you're up to. So we're doing a podcast together called Driftwood Outdoors. That's the name of the the newspaper syndicate that I've been running under since 2006. So I've written a newspaper column every week, published since September of 2006. So there's a little bit of name recognition out there in the Midwest, mostly. Uh, But I recognized his talent, of course, as you just did, and said that we got to be able to take that talent and turn it into an outdoors platform. So with my connections and, and his talent, not only on the microphone, but behind the editing board, we've been able to launch Driftwood Outdoors podcast. It's done very well. Um, you know, like anything that uh, you start at the beginning and if you put in the time and effort and and continue to put out a good product, it's going to grow. And, and we're really starting to see the growth. We're excited about that. But the, the main thing that we've taken away from it is almost everyone that we talk to is like, man, I wish we could have a podcast. So we've actually started a business producing podcasts for other people and we're ultimately going to develop the driftwood network uh we're running under the driftwood outdoors name right now but uh we just we just signed the missouri soybean association and their biodiesel council so we're producing a a 30-minute podcast for them every 
uh, two weeks and actually just uh, had a great call with Jesse down in New Mexico at the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. And we're going to be producing their podcast as well. So I, I really do believe that this is going to spread. Uh, you know, you guys have the podcast now and you hear people starting to say things like, well, don't you think podcasts are starting to get saturated? You know, to which I always respond, well, do you think websites are getting saturated? Because <laughs> you need to have one for your audience. You know, we, we have no delusions of being Joe Rogan or even Stephen Ranella. I mean, you know, that's not the goal. The goal is to provide content that that is valuable to the audience that you're trying to reach and is wanting to listen to the things that you have to share. So I think podcasting, not only is it fun and informative and has a low cost of entry, it's really a powerful medium to be able to discuss in depth a lot of the the more serious topics that we have to face as sportsmen. So, so not only are we trying to tackle those ourselves, we're trying to provide opportunities uh, for other organizations and agencies and companies to do the same. I'm really happy to hear that you're going to be working with uh, Jesse with the New Mexico Wildlife Federation on a podcast too. We actually had him. I wish I could uh, remember the exact episode number, but we had him on this uh, podcast in the summer of 2019. So excited that that he's going to get his own. He's great. Yeah. Jesse's such a cool dude, man. I remember when he was like, picking my brain about whether or not he should leave this like super lucrative construction job to run a nonprofit. And I'm like, uh, yeah, dude, hold my beer as I quit a nonprofit to go to a, a super lucrative, uh, uh, private industry, but no, he he's in it for the right reasons. He's the guy that you want in the arena, you know, all jokes aside, I jumped in and did five years and what an incredible learning experience that was. And, and kudos to those of you that are, are still doing it and, and really staying in the arena and, and, and fighting for what we all care about. But Jesse's certainly one of those guys that is just magnanimous. You know, he has an incredible personality and uh, we're actually talking about doing an audad hunt down in New Mexico with Senator Heinrich. So if we can get out and, and do that, that would be a real highlight for me. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing Senator Heinrich get real busy, though, in the interior office. So we'll see what happens. Good point. Well, I, I love it, Brandon and Nate, because, you know, you guys, you just have a good infectious energy, too. And clearly you're friends. And, and that's a cool thing about podcasts, as we were just talking about, right? We get to get to kind of explore some of those personality things, talk about things with people that, you know, writing just can't convey uh, as, as good as writing can be in other forms of media. This is really the opportunity to flesh a lot of those things out in a real human way. So I let's be honest, man, doing. like, let's be honest, people are lazy inherently. So writing or like reading actually takes uh, re- reading effort. takes work and effort. So podcasts fill that void when you're when you're driving, when you're sitting on an airplane, you can lay back and close your eyes, you know, so it's a it's a whole nother it's a whole nother game. Yeah, I was what just going to say as as a as a longtime writer, like I'd, I'd challenge that there's anything that writing can't convey. But yeah, I'd agree with Brandon that uh, there's a lot that people don't have the either time or willingness to sit down and read, whereas we can listen to it, you know, as we're going about mowing the lawn or heading up to deer camp. Can't I said, when you're driving. Why do you think I got into radio? I was too lazy to write. <laughs> 
Well, that's probably a good segue too. We wanted to talk to you all. Uh, you're both really good people to talk to about this, the outdoor media and kind of what we're seeing and, and, you know, some of the trends and, and who out there is making splashes in your minds and just give you the opportunity to kind of, you know, Brandon, I know you've been part of multiple different outdoor media uh, trade groups uh, and, and seen things over the years and, and been in the conservation side and the for-profit side, you know, I'd, I'd just like to hear your kind of big picture outlook on the way things are going and what you're seeing. Yeah. I must sound like a guy that has a hard time making friends because like I'm such a joiner, you know, I've been part of uh, the Hoosier outdoor riders, Missouri outdoor communicators, Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Riders. I've been president of all three of those organizations. Uh, I've been on the board of directors of the Southeast Outdoor Press Association. I ran the under 25 committee for the Professional Outdoor Media Association. And I've been a member of the Outdoor Riders Association of America. So, so yeah, I, I, I pay my dues so people have to be my buddy. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I, I just appreciate it. You know, it's, it's funny because I look back and I'm old enough, just barely, to remember life before cable television. And I had a grandpa that was so ate up with fishing that he studied it religiously. I don't mean like he went fishing religiously. He studied it. Like he could have had a PhD in fishing knowledge. Every magazine that you could get back in the day in Fisherman, when it was like a half an inch thick every episode every issue, Midwest Outdoors, Fishing Facts, all of them. And then this like revolution happened and you could actually get fishing shows on TV. And we would get ours from channel 38, which was like an old UHF channel. And kids, that is before cable, there was like the main channels. And then there was like the B side of TV. And, and that was the UHF. And it was a, a Christian channel out of Chicago. And we would get like Bill Dance and Al Linder on In Fisherman and you know actually we just lost Ron Linder I heard he just passed away which that that's a legend of outdoor media uh, sorry to hear that yeah for folks who in the Midwest he's an, you know especially he's an absolute legend that I think all of us who grew up fishing uh, you know looked up to it's a tremendous yeah. loss great guy Babe Winkleman so like I would go to my grandpa's when I was like eight, nine, 10 years old and spend the night on Friday. And then we would get up at five 30 in the morning and watch these shows. He'd make pancakes and he had this like newfangled technology called a VCR and he would record these shows and we'd go back and watch them. And, and, Years after he passed away, my grandma gave me this box of these videos that we made in 1988, 1989 of these old shows. So it's like outdoor media has been part of my life since I can remember. But never once did he ever say to me, you could do this. Never once did a high school counselor or a college counselor say, hey, so you spend almost all of your time fishing and hunting. Why don't you make a career out of that? And I look back on that and it almost infuriates me that like nobody had the wherewithal to say, dude, like you could be an outdoor writer or you could, you know, maybe make outdoor television. It was, it was like, it was just bestowed upon the lucky few by God. And uh, eventually 
I was out in Montana living and I met a doctor named E. Donald Thomas Jr. Um, We've done a podcast with Don Thomas. Hal Herring recently did one for BHA. He's a dude that you guys should have on as well. He's, he's just unbelievable. And, and I, I, I went up to him one day and said, you know, I'd give anything to be an outdoor rider. And he's like, well, you should do it then. And it was like the first person that ever made it seem like it's something that you could do. So to anybody, be out there listening to this podcast that's ever thought like i wish i could write outdoor columns or i wish i could do a podcast you can do it keep you know perspective in mind but we need more voices sharing stories of conservation and fishing and hunting and birding and wildlife watching whatever it is that you're passionate about you know you're not going to get rich at it probably but like you're talking to two dudes that are pretty deep into it and it's a side job for both of us yeah, and one one of our uh, I know I know a guy that that we both respected uh, when he was around Jim Harrison. Um, in addition to being a novelist and a poet, was also an outdoor writer. And I think he had one of the the greatest pieces of advice, at least as I was getting into it, that I tried to remember, which is basically to be authentic. You know, he said that very few people can, are actually great wing shooters, great fly casters, and good writers. So if you're a writer, you're probably not good at one of the other things. So don't pretend like you are. Just be honest about how good or bad you actually are. He put it a little more uh, in a non-family friendly way than I'm describing it. But but that's the gist of what he said. Yeah, you know, I think when you're a when you're a novelist like Harrison or uh, even a feature writer for magazines, you get to focus so much on that one assignment or that one like big block of content that you're trying to produce. When you're a columnist like me pumping out two articles a week, every week, it's almost like you can't hide who you are because you got to come up with something every week to produce. So, you know, I I love it when I I write a column like this poaching one that came out, there's all kinds of blowback from, you know, the people who actually like the hounds and, and the outlaw, the outlaw crowd. It's almost like uh, when uh, Hillary called the Trump voters deplorables and it became like a badge of honor for them. I, I wrote about this like outlaw mentality and that that's like gone like widespread in, in this culture down there that that some suit is calling them outlaws. <laughs> like, well, that's funny that you think I'm a suit and that you're proud to be called outlaws. But let me promise you, I'm not the first to bestow that badge of honor upon that part of the world. So, Nate, what about you? I mean, you, you kind of jumped into this with Brandon, obviously have a have a media background, but who who did you look up to conservation wise? And tell us a little bit about how you got into conservation with, you know, the Federation of Missouri there or or otherwise. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the the exact opposite. I grew up in a town of 1500 in the hills of Oregon where we had maybe three TV stations and one radio station if you had some tinfoil and and was lucky. So my outdoor experience was, of course, being introduced to it by my father and my my uncle and just being surrounded by it. You can't grow up in such a small town surrounded by that big timber and the the Pacific Ocean and the Columbia River and not want to be out experiencing it. So, I mean, yeah, we would have the the salmon trout steelheader magazine uh, occasionally or a field and stream, but I never really remember my dad having a subscription to outdoor 
media or outdoor magazines. We just went out and did it. Like if you want, that's how we spent our time. We had no other alternative. I mean, I remember when the first Nintendo came out and then that took a little chunk of my outdoor life as well. But for the most part, growing up, it was just what we loved to do. Staying on an island overnight, salmon fishing in the morning and being up in the woods looking for deer or just trying to, to, to see an elk. And like I had mentioned earlier, I'd always considered myself like a conservationist because I hunted and fished, but I never really put any thought growing up to why those fish were in that stream or how they got there or would they still be there the next year? I just expected it. The same with the deer hunting. And even coming out to Missouri, Brandon's the one that really opened my eyes to the idea of being an outdoor communicator. This is all really brand new to me. And I mean, still within just a a year or two of, of getting into it in and I, I find it absolutely fascinating and I really carry it with a badge of honor. And, and I think the, what you're talking about just being genuine. And like when I, when I'm telling stories and stuff, I am genuine because I just loved it. I grew up doing it. There was no other option. That's all I wanted to, all I wanted to do that we talk about the future of uh, media and the future of outdoor Instagramming and stuff. And it kind of scares me just because I don't stop and pause to take pictures because I want to do the next cast. Brandon gives me a hard time. Like I'm a 12 year old when I got a fishing pole in my hand, because I don't do anything other than fish because that's so much what I love. It's just such a, a passion. <laughs> he he unmikes some, uh, unmutes himself. Cause the guy's he a ju- he's a junkie, man. <laughs> like it's unbelievable. Like you've never seen anything like it. Like we did a podcast in a, in a drift boat one time, like going down the river and it was like, bro, are you, you ever gonna speak? Or am I just totally by myself? And he's like, Oh, sorry, man. I'm just back here catching fish. Somebody's got to catch the fish, but it's, it's a passion. Like, like I've not seen it in a grown man before. I mean, he's missing his boat by not being a tournament angler. Like I, I fished one bass tournament in my life and hated it. Cause it was just like zip, 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 people cutting you off, throw, 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 go to a new spot. Like I fish for fun. Like my life is stressful. You know, my work is stressful. Like I can't make my fishing stressful, but this dude is like on the edge of a heart attack at all times when he's on the water. It's, <laughs> and, it's crazy. And honestly, that's what kind of scares me about moving in the future, because I do see a lot of the outdoor media being more visual and being more of the Instagram fake photos and everything's posed and propped and even just watching the deck. Dude, I know that's not real and that I have a hard time just even remembering take a picture while you're out there for social media, because whether it's deer hunting or fishing that I'm so immersed, I so love it so much. It doesn't even cross my mind that, oh, I need to set up my water bottle because it has a logo here with my rifle here with my fishing pole here so I can get some likes on a social media platform. So it's all new to me. I'm genuine. I absolutely love it. And I love talking about it. And the way I look at it, I just want other average Joes, other people that I really want to get across the idea of the difference between being an outdoorsman and a conservationist, because I had that completely confused that you can be, you need to be both. You need to love it and we need to save it or conserve it. 
Yeah, we had uh, we had a buddy come in from California. I actually met him at a, a professional outdoor media association conference and it was like everything was set up the way it was supposed to be like here's a guy who really wants to be a sportsman and he's he's like a a late onset hunter um very personable somebody that i i thought i wanted to spend a bunch of time with and uh he came out man and the whole trip was for the gram you know, it was like the whole experience was about creating these fake photos for Instagram. And I think it was you, Shags, who was like, yeah, he just asked me to take his picture. And then he went and pretended to be asleep. <laughs> like, what in the hell is going on? And, you know, I think we're we're seeing a delusion of outdoor media. I mean, I think of the old timers and and how they would laugh at, at these like posers that have come into the space. And I know we got to be careful with like how much like shade we throw on them folks, because yeah, at least they are trying to hunt and fish somewhat and bring some, some notoriety to those, you know, historic traditions. But at the same time, like if you're not in it for the right reasons, it, it shows, I think, and it, it's hard for me and people like me to get behind. Yeah. I'm wondering though, how, how different is that than like the first dudes in the sixties or seventies, maybe to take a camcorder with them up in a tree or on a boat and film themselves, like trying to get a show going, you know, versus just to go out and fish. I like, think it's, like, I, is this just the newest iteration of that? No, I, I don't think so. I think it's really different. I think those dudes were like super hardcore at it already. They're like, you know what? Like would be amazing is if we could share these hardcore adventures that we're on with other people. And then it turned into this industry in which you could make a living and, and a very few select people started doing it. Like I talked about when I was a kid, there's, you could name the people making these shows on your 10 fingers. And now, I mean, when I was, I was, in a previous life, also a marketing manager for a major, um, you know, industry company in hunting and shooting. And we were dealing with about a million dollar budget and I would get inundated with people trying to explain to me why their show was so revolutionary and why it was going to turn the industry on its head. I'm like, look, man, there's 600 outdoor television shows and not, not 50 of them are worth watching in my opinion. And, uh, so I, I think it became, you know, this, this, I almost like a pyramid scheme, like somebody gets into it then they can get another guy into it. And then they try to like build out these like platforms and it just got so diluted and so bad that it became evident that these folks not only were not knowledgeable about hunting and fishing, they weren't knowledgeable about conservation and the reasons why it's important to share messages and and then it just it really cast a horrible light on the outdoors in general and i think we're seeing that too in in some of these you know instagram influencer situations where like like look i won't lie you know like who do you know i'm i'm a guy like i don't mind a picture of a, a beautiful woman in a in a bikini but when it's for all the wrong reasons that's frustrating to me. Like, don't try to, to turn hunting and fishing into something that it's not. So that that's, I think where people are starting to lose taste with the direction that a lot of this like influencer stuff is going. You, you mentioned um, losing sight of the conservation message. Um, What are the conservation issues right now that 
that folks, whether they're influencers or not, um, that hunters and anglers need to be aware of going on in Missouri and the Midwest. Well, of course, there's new ones cropping up every day, but I'm, I'm, I, I think it would be funny if we could do like a contest for the top Instagram influencers and ask them to explain the Pittman-Robertson Act to us or the Dingle-Johnson Act to us or anything that's historically been around funding conservation, you know, for a long time, let alone the things that are on the table right now. Like if you didn't make a call or send an email on the Bristol Bay Pebble Mine, then, you know, shame on you. That was just a huge win. If you didn't send an email or make a call on the Great American Outdoors Act, you know, that was another huge win. So we're seeing, we're seeing big wins right now that are, I mean, monumental that we're going to look back on and say, you know, thank God there were people that were willing to, to put themselves out there and fight for these protections. Um, but if the people that are actually trying to influence others don't even understand the history of conservation, how we got to where we are, what happened through the extirpation years, what it took to restore wildlife to our landscape, how funding and policy play into that, then then you know we're we're facing an uphill battle into the future uh, when it's hey like look at my selfie duck face lipped picture, but I have nothing to back it up behind that. Did we mention we're on Instagram, Driftwood Outdoors? <laughs> we know you are. Everybody is. <laughs> but like he said, though, it's not. It's not all bad. I didn't. I didn't mean to bring that up just so Brandon would go go on that that tangent. That I, I really do think there is some really good outdoor media being being created, and it's getting some really great mainstream love. I mean, just look at Joe Rogan and what what he's really done for the outdoor community, just for his passion behind it. And I really respect what Steve Rinella has been doing, where we've gotten away from chasing uh, monster bucks, big bucks, 55, volume 340, to just really being about feeding the family and filling the freezer and and the experience, which which it really should should all be about. So, I mean, there there's definitely pros and con cons out there. I just uh, just want to apologize for for getting <laughs> all riled up. Yeah, yeah. No I should, I, I got to jump back in here. It's not all bad. Like, you know, Ranella's building a dynasty, and it's fun to watch. You know what what Steve's been able to do is emerge as the leading voice of our time, and I think it's a well deserved position for him to be in because he is so knowledgeable i mean it goes back to his early childhood and you know i know guys that have known him most of his life and they're like that dude didn't even like go on dates in high school like he was trapping beavers you know so he's like very authentic in this and uh and and a great ambassador and he's he's bringing some people along with him some of them are already superstars some of them you know are likely going to emerge to to be better than they are at this time but there's other people that are doing well too one that i've just just started kind of paying attention to is uh these young guys doing the hunting public i think they're really authentic i I like their i like their content because they're not out there trying to kill boone and crockett deer they're just trying to like have fun on public land and they travel around and it kind of reminds me of what me and my cousin and some of our friends were doing you know and these guys are just making a business out of it and i i'm i'm really respectful of of what they're doing and then as we see print media get whittled down 
the cream continues to rise to the top and and there's some great writers out there i mean i am you know i i will pray in the church of hal herring you know any day of the week i'm, I'm just a huge fan of hal herring some of our other friends like clay newcomb like that guy and he just joined up with meat eater like that guy is so authentic and and so rooted in an outdoor passion that it's just it's to his core russell graves down in texas is a photographer videographer writer public speaker you know so there's there's really some some amazing people out there doing great content uh the corporate side of it is is maybe not on as solid a footing as we would like you know we're we're seeing outdoor life and field and stream disappear from our shelves but then you're seeing new digital content cropping up all the time to fill that space so so there are a lot of positives out there and one plug i'll i'll give to all conservation nonprofits though for me anymore when i when i read magazines almost all of them are coming from a conservation organization i think if you're not paying your $35 a year to be a member of a conservation organization like the National Wildlife Federation or National Wild Turkey Federation or the Elk Foundation you know you, you should think well even even for just the magazine it's worth the $35 to be a member of one of those organizations. Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, they put out great publications, uh, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfall. So I get, I get a, and oh, probably my favorite is Trout from Trout Unlimited. So I, I get a lot of magazines that way. I love this, Brandon. You're, you're, you're covering some ground, man. You're, just, you're giving us a lot to think about. And I, I, I really thought about a couple of things you said there that, that are things that resonate with me that I keep saying. And, you know, ironically, sometimes I even feel like, man, should I say this right now? Because people kind of get tired of it, but the first one's easy and that's authenticity. And, you know, you're right about that. People who are really doing it and doing it for the right reasons. You just can kind of tell, right. By the way they hold themselves, by the way they portray what they're doing, that really matters. And, you know, I think the other thing that gets lost on people is a good, a good, kind of threshold for me is would you want your kid to see this and would it represent to your kid what you want them to understand about the outdoors? And that's, that's a good, just, I think, uh, sniff test, if you will, because a lot of that stuff, you know, my kid, I have a 15 year old and he, he'll look at stuff and be like, you know, what is that about? You know, not because he doesn't appreciate looking at it, but it's because he doesn't understand it because it's not about the hunting or the fishing or the outdoors, it has these other motives that lie within it. And he can tell that, but he can't really understand what they are because he doesn't, you know, subscribe to some of that stuff. And I guess the other point I would make is I always say this, I say it on the show sometimes, you know, is with this huge privilege that we have as Americans, these, these public lands, these opportunities, the wildlife, a lot of the things you touched on there, we have an obligation. And you've got to do something. You, you can't hang around and just continue to go out every year and hunt and fish and, you know, take that privilege and not give back to it in one way or the other. So I just, I just, you know, really like that you're, you're you have that passion and that you're telling listeners that and, and really saying folks, Hey, you got to get engaged, put your money out there, get those magazines, get involved in these issues. So just thanks for doing that. And, you know, Let's get back to let's get back to the question that I think Drew asked a little bit and tell us 
tell us what's going on in Missouri a little bit. You know, there's, there's a few issues we know of, but you guys live and breathe it. Tell us what's going on out there and what people should pay attention to. <laughs> well, there's more than a few. Why don't you tee one up for me? <laughs> well, whether it be, you know, the fun, wildlife funding and conservation funding or, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So <laughs> I'll give you that one and, and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, for anybody that doesn't know about the Missouri model of conservation, I'll give you a, a quick overview. I mean, Missouri is incredibly special and neither uh, Shags nor I are originally from here. I'm from Indiana and then came to Missouri uh, via Colorado and then Montana, then back to Indiana and then into Missouri. Been here a little over 10 years now. And, uh, as I said earlier, led the, the Conservation Federation for a while. So I got real deep into understanding the politics and the history and what an incredible story it is. So back in 1935, wildlife was all but extirpated from the state. I mean, the Ozarks are a hard scrabble place. Think Appalachia, think the poorest counties in the country. The county where my cabin is, is one of the 40 most poor counties in the country. So, so people were just trying to survive and they, they wiped wildlife out. Uh, in 1935, we had a state-based agency like most people are used to in every other state in the union where the legislature controls conservation. Missouri got together at the Tiger Hotel and there were some just absolute luminaries, Aldo Leopold, Ding Darling, uh, E. Sidney Stevens, Rudolph Bennett, these giants of their time gathered together, about 75 people. Unfortunately, there's no official roster that's ever been found. And they created the Conservation Federation of Missouri. And they ran an initiative petition to strip control of conservation away from the government. Today, this just seems impossible. It would be like saying we're frustrated with the way COVID is being taken care of. We're going to form a nonprofit that's going to run an initiative petition, put a question on the ballot, and vote to take control of health and human services away from a state agency that's governed by the legislature and put it in the hands of a four-person bipartisan commission. But that's exactly what happened back then. And the Conservation Commission was born. The Conservation Commission exists today, uh, nearly 85 years later, for unpaid volunteer citizen commissioners that govern the Missouri Department of Conservation, which operates outside of the purview of the legislature. So that goes into place in, in 1935 and the legislature's like, great, you've got the power, good luck, we've got the money. So for 40 years, the department starts to, to make advancements, trying to bring back deer, which at the time were estimated to only be 400 whitetails left in the entire state of Missouri, about 2,000 turkeys. Fish numbers were, you know, dismal. Uh, small game was dismal. Predators were gone. Um, so, so they're like, good luck. It goes on, it goes on. Policy gets put in place. We start seeing uh, a lot more rules and regulations come in to govern what little population there was. Some headway is made. And then in 1976, uh, the, the Conservation Federation stepped up again and ran another initiative to create the one-eighth of a cent 
conservation sales tax and it passed. So Missouri has a dedicated sales tax that funds conservation. That if I were to sell you a, a pen for $8, a penny would go into this coffer. And today those pennies add up to about $120 million a year. So Missouri also gets Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson funds, and, and a few other uh, dollars come in from license sales and such. But we are by far the most well-funded conservation state in America. You would think this would be something that everyone would walk around with a pen on their lapel bragging about. But as you can imagine, when that much money is on the table and the legislature and politics can't control it, it drives them insane. So every year, and some years are much worse than others, and this is what Shags was kind of talking about when he said how we met, you know, they were they were coming after us hard because we had just beat back the high fence industry in 2014. So in 2015, the Republican-led legislature was going to defund uh, conservation, take control back, and put up high fence operations on every corner. But no, not really. But they, they, they definitely did try to repeal the conservation sales tax, which just in my 10 years in Missouri, they've tried to do at least every other year since I've been here. So we have to constantly fight to keep this funding in place, to keep the ability in place for the Department of Conservation to build urban nature centers, to you know fund programs that educate people about conservation. We have a magazine called The Conservationist that goes to a half a million homes bringing information in, into homes about what you can do outside. So it, it's really a blessing to have the financial resources that we do in Missouri to fund this sort of conservation initiative. Uh, public land as well. That's what, the, that's what the design for conservation sales tax was initially earmarked for, was buying up land, not only to create habitat suitable for wildlife restoration, but to create places for people to recreate in perpetuity for generations to come. As Roosevelt said, for those that are still in the womb of time. And, and we're experiencing that now. These properties that were bought in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s have developed into just pure bliss when it comes to habitat controlled uh, fields, forest, and water. So it, it's an amazing place to live. You know, everybody's like, oh, have you seen the movie Ozark or the show Ozark? And that's not what Missouri is, people. Like, it's an incredible sportsman state. And we got to Go ahead, Nate. Sorry. Oh, no. Sorry about that. I was going to say, and I don't think anyone's too surprised that greedy politicians are trying to take money away from conservation. But the thing that we keep running into, which is the really shocker, is again, both Brent and I are non-native Missourians. The amount of Missouri residents that have come complacent, that have just gotten so used to having so many great things. You would be so surprised of reading some of the comments through social media or some of the comment periods of how people just want the department defunded. And I really, that's what surprises me the most. A greedy politician, not shocked. Missourians thinking that the department needs to be defunded absolutely shocks me, especially coming from a state where the, the, they would get uh, a lotted amount each year and for, for conservation or for fish and game, and it depended. So you're, you're 
the amount your your tags and stuff could go up without warning all these things that the Missouri is just so blessed and that's the part that I struggle with the most and that I really try to hammer home to Missouri residents is how lucky we really are here does that come from regulations that the department puts in place does that just kind of create backlash of somebody saying they're telling me to do something i don't want to do uh so take away their money i know at least in michigan we see some of that with uh cwd uh measures put in place uh for instance like banning baiting uh to reduce the spread of cwd is it a similar type of situation where the department says hey we need to institute this type of thing for conservation and that backlash creates that that call to defund them yeah, that's certainly part of it. I mean, it's it's a big loss of institutional knowledge as well. You know, everybody wants to look up to their grandpa. And, and when your grandpa could tell you stories about how there were no deer when I was a boy, and now look how many deer there are. We're, we're lucky, you know, unless grandpa's a row crop farmer. <laughs> and he's like, well, we're not so lucky. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is everybody our age and younger has been living through like the good old days of, of wildlife in this state. I mean, our, I said there were 400 deer. Now there's 1.3 million deer. So essentially you're just incredibly spoiled. I mean, we stock trout, we stock other game species for fish, uh, turkeys. We, we are always like one of the top few states for turkey harvest. We just brought back elk. We've got bears. So it's like wildlife is flourishing and people are like, there's no problems with wildlife. It's everywhere. And it just, it's like this loss of institutional knowledge of how quickly it can go away. I mean, it was wiped out in a few decades and it's taken a century to bring it back. So without that, like grandpa or, or somebody who remembers those those dire times when you couldn't hunt because there was no game, you know, people forget about that and, and only think about their own little specific interests. So feral hogs is a huge issue here. So feral hogs are a, a big problem. Uh, my land gets destroyed. Uh, if you try to, you know, try to put out any kind of uh, attractant for deer, which is legal, uh, not during hunting season, but, but during other times of the year to, to see what you got through a trail camera survey on your property or something like that, then the hogs just come in and destroy it. They'll destroy fields. They destroy food plots. So the department goes in partnership with the USDA and another large private land holder in Southern Missouri that's got about 160,000 acres. And they form this like agreement to ban feral hog hunting. Well, essentially that just really upsets these hog doggers. So they're like we were talking about with the deer, there's this hound culture in the Ozarks where they, they, Unfortunately, with a podcast, you can't see the air quotes. They actually, they chase coyotes. They're chasing deer. They're chasing feral hogs. And when, when it becomes illegal, of course, they know that now they can get in trouble for it. So they've made a huge fuss about the department is ending hunting opportunities. Well, they're trying to preserve hunting opportunities by eliminating an invasive species that negatively impacts uh, the populations of the species that we're actually trying to hunt that belong here, like deer and turkeys and squirrels and, and other native wildlife species. So, so whatever that issue may be, I mean, we've seen a, a big blowback from feral hogs. The, the high fence 
deer industry, servant industry has put tons of money into, you know, fighting against the department and, and turning people against the department catfish noodlers um you put a slot limit in on a fish species and people lose their mind so it's like anything that infringes upon like your one little specific interest without giving any thought to the to the bigger picture and the greater good for all people and all citizens and all species um so ultimately it really just comes down to selfishness so talk about cwd brandon i mean you know, for yeah. folks who don't know, CWD is is growing. It, we're learning more and more that it's out there and <clears throat> getting into new counties and new places. Uh, we we have some issues trying to figure out what we're going to do about it. We've we've tried to run different pieces of legislation. ACE Act actually passed not that long ago, which will help. But but give us a you know view of what's going on in Missouri and and how you guys are tackling it and what are the biggest challenges. Well, I'll I'll say first off that I'm really proud of how the Department of Conservation has handled it. It has not been easy. And th- and that's another thing I want to say is that Shags and I are friends with these people working at the Department of Conservation. And and people know the director and they may know a few division heads, but they don't know the the deer biologists and the turkey biologists and and these people that dedicate their lives to trying to make these species healthy and provide opportunities for us to hunt them and for people to watch them as wildlife watchers and stuff. So when, when people go on social media and disparage, you know, what the department is doing, they're disparaging these, these men and women that have given so much of themselves to trying to actually do right by all of us. And that's what makes us stand up and, and fight for them because as, you know, government employees, they can't really fight back against the public. And, and that's why Shags and I and a number of our friends in the media try to take that on our shoulders and, and do it for them. But the CWD issue, chronic wasting disease, uh, which is an always fatal disease, neurological disease in cervids, it's the equivalent of mad cow disease, um, has spread across the country. And I'm I'll go to my grave blaming uh, the high fence deer industry for really exasperating the spread. They're not, they're not guilty of, of all of it, but by trailering these deer from, from captive spot to captive spot, they've definitely uh, made it significantly worse. I mean, we just used the COVID example. Like we can't have kids in a classroom together because if one kid has it, it's going to spread to the other kids in the classroom. That's very easy for people to understand right now. If you take a deer with chronic wasting disease, which can spread in a similar fashion through, uh, we're talking about COVID spreading through, you know, like droplets, this, this spreads through bodily fluids as well. So one deer gets into a population, it can spread it to all deer. And then you can take a deer out of that population, put them in a, a trailer and drive them to a new population and he's spreading it there. So it, it's just this sp- like plate of spaghetti looking graph of how these deer have traveled and moved this disease around. So of course, in Missouri, we find chronic wasting disease back in 2012 in a high fenced operation up in North central, the North central part of the state, which is one of the best 
deer hunting uh, locations in the country. So guys have spent their entire life dreaming of, of having a property. They buy a property and now it's infested with CWD. What does the department want to do? They want to come in and call a huge amount of deer. So lower the deer population, impact the hunting. I mean, it's devastating stuff. And, and some people fought back against it. Thankfully, more people understood that you know, it's, it's a horrible situation and we got to do it. So what MDC has done is they've gone into these areas where a positive occurs and they basically create a perimeter by wiping out a big population of deer around that positive area. And we've been able to really control uh, the spread of CWD in our state. We have it but it's it's so minimal compared to a state like Wisconsin who uh you know geniusly hired a high fence guy to come in and be the the CWD czar and he said oh it's no big deal it's a fake government disease don't worry about it let's just let it go and now we've seen graphs and charts and meetings where at the worst there's 47 positives in a square mile First of all, there should never be 47 deer in a square mile, but there's 47 positives in a square mile. And and there's areas of Wisconsin now where, you know, 50% of the bucks two and a half years old are turning up CWD positive. So it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's a shame that some states aren't addressing it the way that Illinois and Missouri are, which is aggressively, uh, but it's a lose-lose for everybody. It's a lose-lose for hunters, wildlife watchers, uh, landowners. It definitely impacts land value and private property value. It impacts the number of people that are going to hunt and buy a license, so it affects conservation funding. Uh, it's it's just a really bad situation, but I think Missouri, you know, tip of the tip of the cap to Jason Sumners, Jason Isabel, some of these other guys that are dedicating their life to it. Missouri is again leading the way and and how to handle a, a bad situation. Thanks, thanks, Brandon. That's it's a tough one. It's a it's a nationwide problem. It's something we've got to tackle together. Uh, you know, it, it's, we don't have a live test yet. Uh, so, you know, you can't find out if an animal has it until, until, you know, they're dead, which is another issue because, you know, that would be a huge thing if, if you did allow captive farms, which I think we all agree. It, wildlife is wildlife and they don't belong in, in fences like that, wild native species. Uh, but if you did and, and you had a live test, that would really alleviate it. And it's something that is really, you know, it, it's beyond even just being able to hunt. It's, it's about the way we treat wildlife, the way we honor it, the way we respect it in our country uh, and, and having it around and having it be healthy out there. So, you know, I, I commend you following it and all the knowledge you have about it and the, and the advocacy you've done throughout time. I think it's, it's going to just take a, an army to really get this done. Uh, it's a big, it's a big deal. And we're going to see some more opportunities. Hopefully the ASAC, these, these provisions in the ACE Act are going to help, but we're going to learn some more and be able to get somewhere. Um, yeah. And what, what the ACE Act does is it creates a, a study to study the ways that CWD is transmitted and, you know, therefore hopefully find some ways to, to reduce that transmission. Um, there's also a proposal last term for the CWD Management Act, 
um, which which NWF supports that would actually provide funding and help to uh, states to to help them deal with it. Is is that is the funding that Missouri gets is that helping to to cover what they need for CWD or are they even with that? eighth of a percent funding um, in the tax base, do they still need more funding, you know, for instance, from federal help for what the burden that CWD places on the agency? Well, every dollar that's spent on combating CWD, which is millions of dollars a year, is money that cannot be spent on creating habitat for quail, which is a, now there's a species that's suffering in Missouri. You talk to the old timers, it's just the opposite of deer. It used to be, you couldn't walk to the mailbox without kicking up a covey. And now, you know, quail are here and it's not as dire as some like to say you can go out and find some wild birds in the state but you know for every dollar that's spent on cwd that's a dollar that can't be spent on quail restoration or rough grouse restoration or making sure we have fish in our urban lakes and ponds to introduce kids in the city to fishing you know so it's it's a give and take and it's unfortunate that we have to give so much to combating a disease but it really is a tip of the spear problem that we're facing as a society of wildlife lovers today. Well, on that kind of downer note, <laughs> um, what are you guys looking forward to in the new year? Well, it's, <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see what 2020 starts off with. <laughs> but uh, I mean, realistically, I'm looking forward to where the Driftwood Outdoors podcast is going to go and uh, get, getting some more nonprofits on board and getting some more conservation podcasts out onto the platform. And, and personally, a lot of fishing, like winter trout fishing is one of my favorites. It's not nearly as busy. People don't like to, to fish out there in the cold weather and and the frozen beards and the snow but it's one of my favorite times uh to get out and do some trout fishing so that's what i'll be spending the beginning of of 2021 doing and kind of feeling out the the whole covid pandemic thing and seeing if we're going to have any resemblance of uh, a normal society or uh, what's what's going to happen you know i i don't i don't think things are going to ever revert back to exactly what they were prior to 2020. We were talking about this around the fire the other night that, you know, those of us that are old enough to remember 9-11, we always will be able to tell you like where we were standing. And I think that the longer we get in the tooth, the more years seem to, to bundle together. And you can talk about your college years. You can talk about your 20s and your 30s. But I think 2020 is always going to be a standalone memory. We're going to be able to say, like, that's when we had to stop traveling for work so much. That's when cubicle life uh, really took a nosedive for people that started working from home. So I, I don't think we'll ever drew be at as many conferences and events as we went to before on one hand that's good as far as uh, combating climate change you know and encourage anybody to go outside on a, a star filled clear sky night and look up and try to find a jet it's not nearly as easy as it used to be uh so you know the lack of travel is is definitely keeping carbon out of our atmosphere and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions but at the same time i I miss my friends and i miss like this 
conservation outdoor family that I feel like I'm part of. So more than anything, I'm looking forward to hopefully uh, the vaccines um, getting rolled out in a way that protects us from COVID and allows us to once again gather uh, as uh, as a community and and spend some time together because is even though that we we, we got to be so thankful for this technology that we're using right now if this, if this had happened in you know just 20 years ago could you imagine what it would have been like how isolated we would have been and unable to communicate in the ways that we are today so so while I'm thankful that we can zoom I, I do hope to return to uh, seeing some of you guys in person yeah actually as you were saying that I think one of the last gatherings I went to before we had to stop was the Hoosier Outdoor Writers Conference where I saw you, Brandon. Uh, We talked about Asian carp and uh, that was February and it was just a couple weeks later that the shutdown went into effect. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hopefully being able to attend uh, an association of great lakes outdoors writers conference in 2021. Maybe if things start to get better by September and see all of you again there. Yeah. Right after that conference, I snuck down to Florida and shot an Osceola, which was like (laughs) the one time I've been an Osceola Turkey for anybody that might not know subspecies. Uh, One time I've been on a plane this year. That's not my own. That's another glorious thing that I've been able I I have a small little airplane so I've been able to bounce around in in that a little bit this year so that's uh having the skies to yourself is is pretty cool we'll talk about that on another podcast I'm heading heading to Arizona in January to quail hunt with quail forever down on the Mexican border and then uh Jesse and I will do that uh outdoors experience hopefully with senator heinrich in new mexico in february or march so just looking at like all right i can reallocate my vacations because we're not taking the girls to disney world next year so i got vacation days saved up for some uh some great outdoor adventures that's awesome brendan i heard you say you think you're part of the outdoor family i i damn sure know you are um and and i've one of the things that's been awesome is we run into each other over the years after you've left the, the Federation of Missouri, there is how much we still have fun, tell stories, you, you're still in it, you're still doing a lot for conservation. I appreciate what you're both doing on this on this podcast with Driftwood and always a entrepreneurial thinker, creative, creative folks making cool stuff happen. And uh, we'll let you all ride here, but thanks so much for, for spending some time with us and we'll try to get on your podcast here in the near future and, and share some of our stories when you give us the, the reins to tell some funny stuff and uh, we'll go from there and, and happy trails until then. Yeah, we appreciate it, man. This is a, a new deal for us to do a podcast uh, remotely. So thanks for showing us the way and, and thanks for what you guys do. I mean, I, I'd listened to your podcast with, uh, well, you had Colin O'Mara and Jeff Crane on at the same time. So end of the year, you guys are really scraping the bottom of the bucket right now to have <laughs> me and shags on c- compared to those two. But, um, you know, listen, listening to Colin talk and, you know, about all the challenges and, and what it takes to, to be in the arena. Uh, you guys are doing it and, and NWF, I mean, 
Colin said it. So it's fair game for a long time was not looked at as really a sportsman friendly organization. And Aaron and Drew, you guys are changing that. And, and NWF is back at the table and the blue ribbon panel and under Colin's leadership. So uh, we're going to share this with all of our hunting and fishing friends and anybody uh, that's not real familiar with NWF, the National Wildlife Federation. I encourage everybody to take a deeper look at it because it really is one of the most important conservation organizations out there. And and these two guys are are very critically important to bringing that sportsman's voice and advocacy back to the table. So thank you both very much. Thank you, Brandon. Um, really appreciate that. And I think it's important to note too that while maybe NWF um, as a national organization maybe wasn't always looked at like that in recent years, our affiliate structure, which is certainly the federation, has never lost that that hunting and fishing credibility. You know, from groups like CFM and MUCC, who I used to work for, um, and and it's that those affiliates that have kept us in the game uh, so that we could make this comeback if, if that's what it is. But we'll definitely link to in the notes to Driftwood Outdoors. Uh, make sure people can find that. And uh, we really appreciate you both making time to talk with us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, fellas. Yep, thank you. And uh, for the for the Instagram photo, um, make sure you send me um, one of like Brandon and Nate with like duck lip. Um, <laughs> I got the bikini picked out already. <laughs> he already has a bunch of bikini pictures. Happy <laughs> trails, gents. All right. Thank you. See you guys. We are NWF Outdoors. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.